Open our lips, O Lord, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. Amen. Well, this gospel story today is one that slipped past the public relations department. Does not really show Jesus in a very good light. And it's really great that the church did not pull that one out and say this could be embarrassing how he behaves with this woman today. Because what they understand is this isn't a story, finally, of embarrassment, but it's a story of hope. Now, a little context before we get to today's story. By this time in the gospel, Jesus has done the following. He has cast out demons. He has healed lepers and paralytics. He has calmed the storm at the sea. He has fed 5,000, actually 5,000 men, it says, plus the women and children who are there, so add the numbers. He has walked on water. A woman has been healed simply by touching his cloak, and today he drops a racial slur. Might not have seen that one coming. But we don't need to pretend it's anything less. The definition of a racist is a person who shows or feels discrimination or prejudice against people of other races or who believes that a particular race is superior to another. Generations of scholars have tried to clean this story up, and really it's not helpful. You know, the the line about maybe Jesus was testing her faith. And I'll ask you is if you have ever been in a relationship where someone tested whether or not you were really a friend. Yeah, yeah, that's intolerable. Why would we accept it from God? It's not what's going on. There's no cleaning this story up. He calls her a dog and says she and her people are not worthy of the goods of God. Now, where would Jesus learn that kind of stuff? Well, um, first, I'm guessing he probably learned some of it in his neighborhood. You know, most of us grow up with some other group that we want to say is less than us, depending where we grew up, either the next town or another city. Um, I joked about how when we moved to Mississippi, figuring on how it was ranked 50th by so many things, they couldn't look down on anybody. Well, people in Mississippi look down on people in Arkansas. Everybody looks down on somebody. Jesus' neighborhood probably had some of the same. But even if it wasn't his neighborhood, he certainly learned it by his religion. Israel had heard they were blessed, Sarah and Abraham, blessed to be a blessing to all people. But they got confused about what that meant. They got confused about what that meant and how they could treat other people. They also came up with all kinds of laws about you will not talk with, you will not have relationships with these other ethnic people, you will not marry these other people because you are impure and unclean. And though Jesus could quote Isaiah with the best of them, he grew up in a culture that said, we really are just a little bit different. And so why would we think that Jesus could somehow slip out of this What were the subtle messages, as faithful as Jesus was, as faithful as his people were? The subtle messages that allowed this leper-cleansing, demon-chasing, water-walking, 5,000-feeding, Torah-quoting person 
to drop a racial slur. How is it that he would succumb to the sense of a supremacy of his people over someone else? Now, some of us, particularly white folks, don't like to succumb to a sense of supremacy or we might bristle at the sense about supremacy because we see supremacy as the realm of people who wear swastikas. But the definition from Webster of supremacy, an advocate of the supremacy of a particular group. So again, Jesus who cut his teeth in the synagogue and cut his teeth on the prophets still participated in the reality of his own supremacy. Now the good news in this is that Jesus didn't engage in a debate about whether or not he and his people were supremacy and supremacists. He simply chose to recognize that he was part of something that allowed him to act this way. I am supreme over you and I have my faith to prove it. The gift of Jesus for us is not simply that Jesus showed us how beloved we are of God, but that Jesus is willing to show us how he himself at times did not operate from that love and how he could be changed by that. He is changed by his relationship with the women. This is not the only incidence in the Gospels where we hear Jesus wrestling with his own ethnicity and his own sense of somehow I'm different and better than you. And he's changed by the relationships of the people. He's changed by the stories and the encounters of the people who are brave enough to say, okay, you want to go there? I can go there. He's changed because in choosing to be in relationship, he is not only exposed by her, but transformed by her. That's the gift of this story. That's the gift of Jesus and the gospel writers to us. It's good news because they're telling us, be in relationships that expose you and convert you. If it's Jesus' path, why would we think it wouldn't be our path? Now again, as white folks, we can bristle with the word supremacy. In the July Connection, I wrote an article about the Kerner Commission. It's a commission that is 50 years old, whose report is 50 years old. In the following the summer of 1967, when President Johnson and people in the government observed that well over 100 cities in America blew up in violence that summer. President Johnson said, I need a commission to figure out what made this happen and what can we do about it. And so he appointed a commission that had Republicans and Democrats. It had eight white men, one white woman, two black men, who, as one person said, by the time they got done with their work, the vast majority of them came up with conclusions they would never have imagined beforehand. Because before they wrote their report, what they did was instead of choosing to sit in D.C. and asking all the specialists to come talk to them, they decided to go to the cities. 
and into the neighborhoods and sat in people's homes and listened to the conversations. And they realized that what was going on in our cities was incredibly more significant and destructive than they had ever begun to imagine. Because they listened to the stories. And so 50 years ago, they wrote many things in the report, including this. Our nation is moving toward two societies, one black and one white, separate and unequal. And what white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. Fifty years ago, a commission of primarily white people said, we are living in a time of supremacy, where we are injecting economics into one race at the expense of another. And today, the statistics haven't changed significantly except for the, for the um, statistic around the incarceration of black men, which is going off the scales. And so what is our response to the Kerner Commission and to the condition of our cities and the condition of our country? To this reality of supremacy that still infects all our systems, governmental, economic, religious. As white folks, do we want to get around and feel guilty? Do we want to stand around and say, well, actually, I didn't start all this. Do we want to be like the people a couple of weeks ago in the gospel who said, Jesus, this is really hard to hear. Who can take this? In his book, The Alternative, Mauricio Miller talks about how people on both the right side and the left side of the political spectrum engender a certain supremacy, a certain privilege, because both sides, maybe with different kinds of language, but both sides essentially say, these people of lower economic statuses either don't have the values or the skill sets to do something about their life, and so we have to do something for them. He talks about how we denigrate the resiliency, the creativity, the ingenuity of people who live in and around the poverty line in America, and he says it takes much more ingenuity, much more creativity, much more resiliency to live around the poverty line in America than it does to live with resources. He goes on to say, those with privilege primarily trust others with privilege. And so again, does supremacy exist? I'll just leave you the data. Is it in us? Well, if it lives in Jesus, why would we not think it lives in us? And again, we can debate the origins, or we can get like Jesus. We can simply move beyond ourselves and open ourselves to the story and seek to recognize what just permeates all our institutions and get to work restoring and repairing what's been torn down and denigrated. That's why it's a story of hope.
Because what it tells us, if this is the journey of Jesus, and if he can look and be exposed and be changed, then so can we. James Baldwin writes, if the concept of God has any validity or any use, it can only be to make us larger, freer, and more loving. Because of the dogged determination of the Syro-Phoenician woman, Jesus becomes larger and freer and more able to love. And so can we. A few weeks back, I was in a medical office for a checkup, the office I've gone to for a number of years, and have known the receptionist. You know, you get to know receptionists in these medical officers and offices. And, and, and you know, does it ever strike to you that when they pull that screen up, they probably know more about you than you know? Like, I don't want to know what all you have on that. No, no, let's just, quick, move on. I'm here. Get me done. Well, we were talking, and, and I had a book tucked under my arm, and she said, um, what are you reading? And that day, I happened to be a, have a book with me that was called, So You Want to Talk About Race? And she said, you know, I was recently listening to this program on race and listening to the stories there, and it's begun to make me think about a lot of things and, and revisit a lot of things recently. So not the least of which is this reception area. She said, I realize this reception area has many people of many different ethnic backgrounds, ages, but there has been nothing in this reception area, magazines, books, toys for children, that it all reflects racial diversity. And so I went into the office manager the next day and told him I needed money to change the reception area. Now, as we talked, it was clear that she wasn't seeing this as kind of like a one-off, like, oh, I watched this program, and now I'm free of all the bias. You could tell in her eyes it was a sense of, and I'm still figuring out what else I'm going to have to see differently. If I have sat in this office for X number of years and never really noticed the supreme messages, the supremacy messages of all the stuff, and I'm really glad she didn't say that, because I would have said, you know, I've been coming to this office all these years, and I too have never really realized that. It wasn't a one-off for her. It wasn't a one-time thing. She didn't go to her church and decry her sins. She didn't get into a conversation of, well, who bought those things to begin with? Instead, like Jesus she realized that she needed to begin to start seeing some things differently, and she acted. 